0: Hey everybody, welcome to the PC Perspective Podcast. This is episode number 435 being recorded February 1st, 2017. I'm Alan
1: Malvitano. I'm Jeremy Holstrom.
2: I'm Josh Walrath. I'm Sebastian Peak,
3: And I'm Discount Ryan Trout. Awesome. Yeah. You're only like three inches shorter than him. I'm slouching. We've secretly really that, but you probably weigh a
4: good fifty pounds less.
3: We've secretly replaced. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna disparage my <laughs> boss's
0: weight. Well, he's not your boss. You can feel free. It still feels like it. He's still. He's still under the hammer. It, it's Stockholm syndrome. The, the we the all impressive, know. It. Yes, he just refuses to leave. He's been sleeping in a cot in the back corner all these weeks. Gigabit fiber. Yeah, he just stays. What else do you need? Came for the internship. He stayed for the gigabit fiber.
1: Anyway. Uber eats apparently, but you can get that over the
3: fiber too. <laughs> Prime now, Uber eats, gigabit fiber,
0: a cot, a sure. fridge. Yeah, yeah. I don't need anything more in
3: life. No.
0: All right. Uh, let's get to it. Uh, you can find out we are doing this show like we're doing the show right now. Uh, if you were on our spam list. I mean, our notification list. We, we don't we don't spam there. Really. Um, but yeah, there's a form on the website, com slash... Subscribe? Oh uh, yeah, pcpro.com slash subscribe. Uh-huh. You can um, do it. I almost said com slash podcast, but that's you know not the place where you sign up. Uh, you put your name, your email in there, and then you get added to a list, and we inform you when we're about to do live streams. Um, next up... If you wish, you can support us via Patreon. It's patreon.com slash Uh, and it helps us immensely. And unfortunately, Discount Ryan Shroud does not have access, or does he? No, Patreon. he doesn't. No.
3: Ryan, may, Ryan's on Slack on his flight right now, so we'll see if we can get
0: mm, that from him. Maybe Ryan will forward the uh, the messages to us, the names of the people and the amounts who, uh, who increase or become a Patreon subscriber to us. How
3: does he have Wi-Fi calling on that thing? He could call in. It sounds uh, like he has a 56K modem on that thing from yeah, his speed test. So, even yeah. better. He that might would, be able to get email and text chat.
0: That would make it awesome. I think he should like FaceTime. All right. Uh, well, let's just get into it. We can review. Hey, Sebastian's got something. That's right. Let's get
2: right into it. What you got, Sebastian? Well, um, a somewhat convoluted piece, but if you are interested in audio stuff, AptX audio is a different way of compressing audio, and it's something that you may have seen on any of the newer Bluetooth headphones, the more expensive stuff. And it's starting to enter the market a little bit more on a mainstream level. Like, there are more and more, like, headphones. I know Audio Technica announced some stuff at CES that has it, and there are just an increasing number of Bluetooth speakers that will have it. And basically, the whole the whole issue with Bluetooth audio, and it's been significantly better since A2DP in the early 2000s was added to the Bluetooth stack. But, unfortunately, the only way that Bluetooth audio can work is through compression, and the codec built in to Bluetooth compresses regardless of the source material. So say you're listening to something that's already compressed, like an MP3, or an audio stream like Pandora or Spotify or something, and you want to listen to it through Bluetooth headphones, it's going to recompress the already compressed audio using lossy compression. And lossy compression, generally speaking, uh, compression is done by... These psychoacoustic principles where certain frequencies are easier for us to hear than others. So they use masking where, oh, this frequency will be at a certain level so we can actually just omit this other frequency below it because you won't be able to hear it anyway. And so those principles are used to make the file smaller because Bluetooth audio, even at its absolute max, the the spec at its highest quality is up to three hundred and forty five. Kilobits per second, so that seems like plenty. And the highest quality MP3s are like 320, so that shouldn't be an issue, except for the fact. That, and this is all kind of subjective. There's 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 dissent on the side of whether psychoacoustic, um, whether like masking for lossy compression is actually audible or not. And I tried not to get into that. Whether you, you can actually hear the difference between a CD and an MP3 and that sort of thing, because there's, there's people on both sides of that. I'm on the side where you can. But basically, one of the things that appealed to me right off the bat with AptX was it doesn't do that type of compression. It is using compression, and it is using something that could even be called lossy compression. But it is not using frequency-based... Uh, Compression is using time-based compression, and it's using prediction. And the math behind it is actually pretty interesting if you if you look into it. And I, I cited a few links, some PDF files, and things. And I found some uh, actually some courses on YouTube. I was watching some pretty exciting stuff inside of classrooms where they're literally just going over like a quantized wave and talking about the differences between the, the quantized samples and that sort of thing. But ultimately, the way that it works is. Uh, Like with a regular uh, waveform, when you digitize it, and I have a a big graph, there's like a diagram on the first page of the review. When you take the waveform, the up and down like smooth line and digitize it, the resolution of that digitized wave is all based on how many times per second you're sampling it basically. And then how accurately can you pick up the level, the actual amplitude of the frequency each time you do sample it. So, you know, you get up to 16 bit for the the um actual word length, the bit depth and you sample it at least 44,000 times a second and you get into CD quality audio and it's it's considered high enough resolution to be basically perfect. And you get into 24 bit which gives you even greater like magnitudes, like greater precision with actually measuring how loud the frequency was when it was sampled. So the, the, the number of like the actual accuracy with which you're sampling, even within the same um, sample rate is greater at 24 bit, just because you have a, a, a much more control over the actual amplitude. Uh, anyway, this this is pretty basic stuff. It's the way that PCM audio has a- always been done, like pulse code modulation. How how the actual wave is is in a process called uh, what is it? Quantization that where you literally take volume levels and frequencies and turn them into ones and zeros. And aptX works by looking at the frequency. Information like the quantization information after it breaks it down into four groups based on what frequency it is because it uses a subband uh, encoding and then it it looks at the differences between the signal information as it as it moves along and instead of having to transmit the entire thing every single sample. It looks at the difference between sample like 2 and 3 and 3 and 4 and so on, and it actually can just transmit the difference. So it looks at it, well, here's the trajectory that the wave was going. Here was the level it was at. Here's where it ended up. This is where the wave would have had to be in between. And the, the graphics on the screen right now, if you're watching the video, is an example of how you can just transmit the difference and then have the codec on the receiving end, put the whole thing back together again. So it's a very, very efficient way of sending the full PCM signal in a very small package, which is very important when you're dealing with something like Bluetooth, which is highly uh, bandwidth restricted. So you can read really deeply into this if you want to. And like I said, I had some source links on there that'll go very far into a performance analysis of it and the technical side of things. But ultimately it nothing, none of this matters unless it actually makes a difference in how it sounds. And the version of aptX that I got to try out because I asked for some uh, test equipment, like loaner equipment. I didn't have anything that supported aptX. This is not something I would ever go out and buy. And I've always been a Bluetooth skeptic because I've heard Bluetooth. I had Bluetooth headphones Ten years ago, and I thought they sounded pretty bad. But I used them to listen to like podcasts and things. But to hear something, uh, to hear any kind of real difference, it takes like high quality headphones, a good quality source. And even though more phones going forward are going to support this, and obviously because Qualcomm owns AptX now, they can incorporate this into their audio DSP. They can have it right in the SOC, uh, like in the Snapdragon processors themselves. So. Seemingly limitless number of phones could come out in the future that supports this. Right now, one of the few phones on the market, one of the few higher-end phones is the LG G5. So I was loaned a G5 and a pair of these really, really nice Sennheiser Momentum 2 Bluetooth headphones that support aptX. They support the standard aptX. I will mention uh, there's also an HD aptX and a low-latency version of aptX. And the the standard version, fine for for basically uh, CD quality stuff. And I was listening to CD rips in flack from the uh, G5 just to test out the lossless stuff. And long story short, I have like a long description of like my different experiences listening and kind of my opinion of what compressed music sounds like to me. But the short version is that for complex music for the most complex music I can find where you have every single frequency basically being attacked at once where you have bass, mid range, very nuanced treble from like cymbals and the kind of stuff that's very hard to compress at a very high quality loss in a lossy way. That stuff sounded better to me. With aptex, but I could still tell that there was some sort of compression going on. And the only way I could really describe it is... Uh, it didn't sound like MP3. It, it just sounded a bit... Uh, like, the frequencies were kind of ending more abruptly than I was expecting. Like, you you have a lot of ringing... Uh, harmonics and things going on, especially with a cymbal clash that thing rings and rings and it's it's very difficult to i think lossily compress that and have the natural decay of an instrument like that but other than standing sounding a bit sterile it sounded great and then that was only when i was listening for it and only when i was listening with very particular jazz tracks that i have found to be very hard to reproduce and then in general any kind of compressed stuff sounded exactly the same i was using the the 3.5 millimeter cable came with it, listening to it with Bluetooth, without, and it pretty much sounded identical. I would be, I got to the point where I almost thought I was psyching myself out when I thought I could hear a difference. So for standard music listening, for the sources that I think a lot of people will actually be using on their phones which are like 256 kilobit per second MP3s, Spotify, Apple Music, of course no Apple product supports aptX as of right now so that's a moot point but Anything like a typical source, it, it to me makes a big difference to not recompress it using the same frequency domain compression. And I, th- I find it a very impressive technology and it's a very interesting technology. It's not new. It's been around for a very long time. But this implementation of it works very well for the limitations of Bluetooth, basically. Have I talked enough?
3: Yes. Yes. Yeah, probably not. I,
2: I listened to about 60% of it, so probably not Could enough. you go over, over that just, again? I in in post, I can you attention. just edit about 80% of that out? Just compress use, it down. Yeah, use time-based yeah, we'll, compression. We'll just chop it <laughs> in <laughs> about two minutes. It'll be good. My apologies to the live viewers, but hopefully the podcast downloaders will hear a much shorter version of that nonsense. <laughs> All right, so you already know
3: the question we're going to ask. What? Uh, in your research slash testing... How do you think AppDex compares to AAC over Bluetooth, which is Apple's answer to this stuff? I haven't heard AirPods. Uh I don't know. I guess there aren't really many devices at all that support AAC over Bluetooth,
2: which is kind of their weird Bluetooth codec. Yeah, and and subjectively, I think AAC sounds better than MP3, but is this their own? So this is their own codec then? Yeah. Is that what
3: they're actually doing with the They're doing AAC over Bluetooth at like a max of 250K is kind of... That would probably be excellent. What they say.
0: That should be pretty good at that bit rate. Yeah,
3: but again, you have to have it supported on like your headphones or your speakers or whatever, which I don't really... Because I had to Google it to figure out what the heck they did because I know they did something sort of special, but I couldn't remember. And 250 is a pretty high bit rate. Especially for AAC.
0: Yeah. I mean, I, don't know. Yeah. I didn't know if you came up across that. I wonder if it dynamically drops its bitrate like as you know, you go say you walk further away from the phone so that it wouldn't be able to go two fifty?
2: Probably. I would I assume it drops. I, I think as long as you're within like yeah, I guess that's a good point, like the range thing as far as bandwidth goes, because they would have to scale it down. But yeah. if anybody like Apple certainly has the processing overhead to do that. Oh sure, like if, yeah. and their DSP can obviously handle like they, they, they can, can handle variable bit rate, so
0: you know
2: yeah, like to, to even on the fly uh, recompression is nothing for a modern SOC. Like if they're offloading the the audio, so I I imagine that for for the kind of like standard like two fifty six you know aac if they didn't have to transcode on the fly that would sound fantastic if yeah, they were able to just
0: the, the transcoding on the fly is actually the really big yeah. you know once you once you second layer transcode something it takes there's been like studies on this i forget like who the guy was the famous guy that like, i
2: can't remember yeah it's only a, a concatenation i was reading yeah, about this
0: basically it's like you know you can only do one pass through a psychoacoustic thing and into a code, regardless of the bit rate, basically. Yeah. Like once you, once you strip that back out or like decompress it and then recompress it to something else, or even if it's the same, even if you recompressed it to MP3 and it was MP3 in the first place and it was like 320 kilobit or something. Yeah. There's like a significant step down when you mm-hmm. go to that second one, because the psychoacoustic model that got applied, then oh, must the, be Harry Selden. Then the next layer that you tried to, you know, redo that compression on now that other stuff has been stripped out already yeah and it has like a harder time you it's kind of
4: like re-aliasing a scene kind of after you anti-aliased it. <laughs> yes <laughs> basically yes. Yeah, yeah that's that's actually yeah.
0: a really good analogy
2: um, you know i just realized that i actually linked to that uh cj dalton ukib uh, is that, article is that the that's the one yeah so that's in the article it's on the second page it, yeah, recompressing the psychoacoustic uh, compression with psychoacoustic compression is terrible. Yeah, and there's examples in the article of why he says that it you can actually create errors and distortion by doing this. So if Apple's doing it straight, like if they're just they have their own way of just sending the 256 signal using AAC compression to the AirPods, then fantastic, they'll sound. Uh, as good as anything. As good as the but. drivers
3: in the AirPods. Right. <laughs> it would be, it would be <laughs> good if there That's was the a... other
2: thing. You're limited to that driver design. Yeah. That brand and only... I imagine you can only use it with an iPhone and if you could use it with anything else, you're certainly not getting that yeah. capability out of it. You'd be using SBC again, the standard Bluetooth audio protocol. Yeah.
0: I know there have been talks in the past about some ways to have like a type of compression where you can actually strip bits off and you're not transcoding, you're just, you know, this was back in, like, the real media days or whatever, <laughs> is when there, when there was a bunch of talk about this. Like, you can just have, you know, dynamically, the server just has, like, one set of data that's the content that is trying to stream, and then it can just, like, somehow dynamically strip some portion of that stream away, and you end up with, like, the lower bitrate version. Yeah. Which would be amazing for this, right? Because then you would... Theoretically, you'd be like as, as close as you could to the original without having to do a transcode and even if you you know had to sacrifice and go up
2: at a lower bit rate to something I think that's very close to the idea of Aptex, which is you break down the audio signal, you look at the lower medium and high frequencies, and you say, "Well, these frequencies need more data to appear high resolution and these need less and then you you basically encode. Appropriately for the frequency and then when it's sent off to the other side using this sort of um, predictive um, like ADPCM is what they're actually using adaptive pulse code modulation yeah differential postcode, pulse code modulation and you, you're looking at the difference between the signals and their ap- amplitude and frequency and doing this on a sub band level at different Uh, Quality levels, basically different bit depths, and you know it's complicated, but it it makes the most sense to me for for doing something on the fly. For myself, I listen to FLAC files if I want compression on the go, but that's with wired headphones and without a proprietary solution like Apple's or Sony has their own proprietary solution that's very high quality. But you have to have like one of the Sony digital walkmans, you have to have one of the Sony wireless headphones and now you're into you know hundreds, if not well over a thousand dollars for a dedicated digital audio player and wireless headphones to go with it. And at that point, I think that's kind of defeating the purpose of wireless to begin yeah, with. You're going dedicated. I almost feel like you might as well go wired if you're using your smartphone. You want better quality audio over a wireless connection, and the same would go for your in-car audio. Yeah, Is that, that was going to be s- my next question. You know what, I had a chance to talk to um, the uh, AppTex guys a little bit, and it's that was one of the things I brought up was in-car audio experience. To me, that is as big of a deal as getting better wireless performance. If more and more phones going forward follow Apple's approach and make slimmer, more water-resistant designs that omit a headphone jack entirely, then yes, it's going to become vital to have some sort of high-quality Bluetooth Bluetooth audio experience. You want it to be universal, so Bluetooth seems to make sense rather than going with some sort of proprietary connection. But the in-car thing, like how great would it be to be able to just get into a car, pair up your device, and now you're not dealing with just standard Bluetooth audio while you're dealing with what sounds like you're plugging it into like a good quality like aux in and getting like you know full cd quality sound wirelessly you don't have to connect your phone to anything so can you tell when that phone has
3: negotiated aptx is there any way like any cuz it's android is there like any software way to see what codec it's using
2: i didn't get into like i didn't install anything to try to find yeah. out like because, that's, i wondered about that because in the When you're actually setting it up and pairing the device, it does not show this. Yeah, because I believe my
3: car supports AppDex from some light googling. So we might have to try that at some point if we can figure out a way to make sure, like, to actually see what's negotiating. That could be an interesting thing to look at. Yeah, absolutely. All right, we should probably move on. Yes,
0: got some stories. All right, next up. Uh, that FSB Twins power supply we talked about last week, I the think. The Twins, huh? The Twins! You grab the Twins and you pull them out of the box. You yeah, know you saying? just yank on the handles. <laughs> yes. <clears throat> uh, so what this is is an ATX form factor power supply that happens to also check the box of uh, being a dual redundant power supplies into like a hot swappable kind of cage deal there. Um, pretty cool idea. They make a 500-watt version, 700-watt version. Um, I think we tested the 500-watt version. Yep, you did. Um, And, uh, I mean, looks like pretty good overall package. Uh, Our fear from last week looks like it has uh, come up because near the end of the article, it gets into the sound performance, which is pretty much where I directly jumped to. And at the back of these power supplies is the dreaded... uh, 40-millimeter
4: millimeter fans. fans. Oh, yeah.
0: Uh, they're even deeper than normal, too. Yeah, they're the really... They're, I think it's only the a the, detailed look. Uh, yep. They're they're the kind of chunky ones.
3: 40-millimeter um, fans have gotten a lot better.
0: They in are the better. 10 and, years. And, yeah. and they do throttle in this. And now that
3: I've been beating myself
1: in the head with a stick for 10 years, it's been getting better, too.
0: <laughs> yeah. So they are variable speed in this implementation. So if the power supply is not putting out a lot of power then, you know, they're relatively quiet, but uh, I think Lee described them as getting to the point of annoying, or words to that effect, as yep. he uh, yeah. as he ramped up the power yeah. output. So, uh, yeah. Oof. Yeah, okay. okay. Yeah. Yeah, so, you know... I there mean, was one neat trick it did.
1: If you flip back to the page, you're on with the efficiency. Yeah. So, it turns out that When they say it's 80 plus gold, it's actually for a 230 watt server room. So if you scroll up a bit, you you did find that, or sorry, 230 volt. You did find that at 100% 100 load, these things were actually, like that's a normal power supply efficiency curve. See how it dips down towards the end? Scroll up a bit and look at these guys. Uh It kept getting more and more and more efficient. So by the time they hit a 100% load at the normal uh, current that we test at, it was actually finally meeting the 80-plus goal that they they claimed. Interesting. So it's not wrong. It's a little misleading, but it's not wrong. I looked at that and I went, Lee? And then he's like, nope, I double-checked this because... It just looks utterly and completely wrong. So there you go. It, it's definitely got a lot of server DNA in it because it either wants 230 volts or it wants, yeah, I bought the power supply that's going to be at 100% load 90% of the time because I didn't want to waste money.
0: Hmm. It's a little weird. All right. Other than that, it looks good. And it's a cool idea.
1: You know if you need oh and, and they've got flashback. a yeah limiter in there, so the twelve volt is actually three rails, uh but it goes through a hardware limiter and becomes one rail so if you ever do get that horrible crossover that you never want to have happen, it actually literally can't push more than uh what it's rated for on your twelve volt rails. probably a damn good idea
0: hmm. all right. Questions on that one? Going, going, gone? No. Alright, next? Next! Uh, What's next? Uh, Me. Alright, I'll be back in an hour. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Micron uh, 5100 uh, Max and Eco Enterprise SSDs. There's also a Pro in the middle there, but they didn't sample that one to review. We got the 1TB Max and the 2 terabyte Eco model. Uh, these are Enterprise SSDs using Intel 3D NAND. They are all... In TLC mode. Straight TLC. No caching, no SLC, nothing. Okay? So wrap your head around that for a minute and imagine how slow you would think that they would go. However, comma, when you get to the uh, results, which uh, I guess we could say start with just the first uh, saturated IOPS on the... Isn't it because there's so damn many chips in there that... No, they're rated pretty high even um, even for the smaller capacities. Even for the Eco 480 gig, which is only like 10% over-provisioned, which is similar to... Actually, if you scroll up a little bit on that page, just go to the specs, uh, which is like a, ch- a chart that's right there. Yeah. Um, like, you know, the, the throughputs and the IOPS, I mean, it's still respectable even for, you know, a half a terabyte model. If you just go to the one terabyte Eco, uh, you're... Basically, you know, you're saturating SATA there with TLC flash. Um, so pretty good. And not only that, but you're doing it across the whole span of the drive. These are enterprise drives. They're designed for like, you know, random access across the whole, however much capacity they have. Um, so how come, how come
4: the, the, how come it goes lower from 480 gig through the 3840
0: with IOPS? Uh, probably because of a larger table to do lookups. In other words, there's a translation layer. hmm. Right. So, um. So that's kind of the
4: opposite of what we've seen in, in many of these, uh, uh, controllers that have multi uh, sized amounts of, 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 3D NAND or, you know, their XLC or whatever the hell they want to call yeah. it. Yeah.
0: It is also possible that they're provisioning even lower, like their over provisioning is even less at the higher capacities. Intel is known for doing that in their enterprise models. Um, you can still tweak it uh, in that, like, there is a tool that Micron provides that lets you change the over-provisioning, but you can only go in the higher over-provisioning direction, in other words, less available capacity. Um, anyway, uh, so if you go down to that uh, 4K random there, that's that first chart, I've put green Xs on the, uh, on the chart there for what their rating is versus what the drive actually did, so Yes, Josh. There were low ratings. There it looked like relatively low, but uh, you could tell for the rights, which is on the left side of the table. There, it actually outperformed its spec by a pretty decent margin. So I think uh, I think Micron might have just been specing those for like your worst case uh, right IOPS. In other words, if say just things really got fragmented and, and then you were trying to come back with a, you know say you did like 2K random to it for a while or something because of your workload and then you tried to come back at 4K random, uh, you might for a while end up at the lower IOPS level. Micron um, is basically just super conservative in their, in their specs here. Uh, I would skip straight to the next page. Um, you would, but yeah, I'm I would. Straight to the next page, which is where uh, some of the magic really starts happening here. With this thing so if you go down to the first chart, which is right there, which is our uh, high resolution QOS, so the quality service is just basically how consistent all of the iOs are, right and basically, for the most part, uh, these guys are just vertical lines, even on this kind of a table, which is exponentially like inverse, exponentially r- reaching a hundred percent, right It's going to various numbers of nines on the climb up. So typically you'll see things start to level off and turn right at the end there. These just continue to go vertical until they fall off the scale. Uh, And even if I expanded that scale out to like seven or eight nines, um, they're still going vertical until they just end because they just ran out of IOs to chart. So in other words, there's no tail latency to these. There's no IOs that just kind of like fall off. Uh, These drives are extremely, extremely consistent to the point where Almost none of the i o s during the entire course of the test fell beyond like um, something like two milliseconds or something like that and i'm talking like during preconditioning during changing workloads during all that time i've I've like went through the percentiles front to back of the whole suite, which is like a day worth of testing um and to not have a single i o go past a couple of milliseconds is pretty insane um even on this model, which is eco which is, again, almost client-drive level of over-provisioning, like really small amount of OP. Um, uh, then, uh, where can we go here? I'm plotting things a little bit differently for some folks. Uh, there were... There were uh, people had a hard time trying to read the nines charts and see where the lines crossed the various places. So if you go to... I think it's like the third chart down... Um. Yeah, that one right there, that'll work. So that's just showing you the crossover points at all of the various key depths. So if you wanted to know how many microseconds in this case, uh, where the crossovers were for the various numbers of nines, they're right there. And I have that. Those blue X's on that chart there are supposed to be the Q depth one. In other words, the bottom blue line on that chart just needs to be below those. And actually, that X that's on the right, that I just kind of put at the top of the like beyond the top of the chart, is actually uh, the number is actually, I think, um, 9,000, not like 1,400, which you might think it is just because I just ran out of chart space, basically. So well, well, well below their specs. Um, and just as an example, I didn't have the comparisons done in time to put in this review, but even like Micron's own previous generation SATA Enterprise parts exceed these specs like in other words, their their prior gen, just like a year ago, was way worse. In fact, than what the specs are for this drive, which this drive, it just you know kills as far as being super below those latency specs. So that's just an insane amount of consistency, um, you know, insanely good consistency for an enterprise part, um, or for any part for that matter. If you go down a couple more charts, there's none a new thing we threw in there. Um, yeah, that one will work. So what we're looking at there is um, something else new that we're doing. Uh, I tried this with the Micron 9100 review where I was trying to compare two different SSDs, and I decided to issue a paste workload. In other words, don't just saturate the thing all day long because that's not practical, because that's not how they're actually operating in a server. Usually there's some amount of load on the SSDs in a server that's not just take the thing to the maximum queue depth all day long. So... In this case, I'm doing a ramp of iOS per second. So I just step up by 10,000 IOPS um, incrementally, and then I look at what all those QoS figures look like on the way up. So what you'll end up seeing is that for the most part, when you're at the lower levels of load, um, you know, the consistency gets even tighter. Uh, In other words, those lines on the nines chart from the beginning we were talking about would be even more vertical. Um, So just, you know, different kind of stuff we're looking at in this review. Uh, The pricing... Of these guys. uh, Comes in at. The eco models are 45 cents a gig. Pro is 52 cents a gig. Max is 59 cents a gig. Dirt cheap. For enterprise parts. Especially considering the max. The over provisioning on the max. Which has even better uh, consistency. And even higher IOPS capability. Like to the point where it's almost saturating SATA on 4K random. Um, You know that thing has like something like 60% over provisioning and it only came up at like 31% more cost than the eco. So like, you know, you're getting 50% more flash on the product, even though you can't access that 50% more flash. It's just the, the end result of it is to give you better performance, right? Um, pretty interesting to see enterprise parts coming out like super, super cheap like this. And Mm -hmm. Intel did that same thing with the the 3520 series that we reviewed a, a few months back, which was an NVMe PCIe part that they were selling for, you know, it was in the order of like 55 cents a gig or sixty cents a gig or something like that for an NVMe you know PCIe uh, part with really, really high performance. And both of these both of these guys boil down to their three D T L or their three D E M um, L C or E T L C depending on how they you know how they implement it. Uh, from company to company. But that 3D stuff is definitely paying off, at least for Intel and Micron. Um, especially in the when it comes to, you know, cost-effective enterprise parts. Because, yeah. I mean, 45 cents a gig, you're getting pretty close to consumer SSD pricing there and cost per gig. Pretty good stuff. Anyway, questions on that? Yes, no, maybe? Not really. All right, nobody likes Enterprise SSDs, fine. They're
3: fascinating, but just, <laughs> it's no a, one will just, buy one just, for uh, me. Yeah. No, no
0: one will. It's, it's well, okay, so so on that note, and I don't have this like strictly from Micron in a statement, but on the Intel side, Intel designs their firmwares for Enterprise so that if something goes a little bit sideways in the firmware, it auto-detects it itself and then bricks the SSD, like on purpose, because if you're managing an enterprise, yeah. you don't want to troubleshoot an intermittent fault somewhere in your rack space yep. of thousands of parts, right? And Jeremy, you, you, can, you, Jeremy you, can back I that am up, right? Perfectly fine with that.
3: Yeah. you just put the sticky note on the SSD that says "works," question mark. Yeah, or is this, this
0: might yeah. this might be going out, you know? And then you put your sticker with the sticky note with the password right next to it. No, um, so you want them to do that. Now I'm pretty sure Micron probably subscribes to the same kind of methodology. So regardless of how cheap these are. I don't like buy one off of eBay and try to put your OS on it and then have that be the only copy of your important stuff. Like Well just you know, in general, but Yeah, that too. Just don't don't rely on it to that level because as unlike now, granted, these are tested the idea is these should have better reliability than consumer parts, but the thing is it's always possible that something's gonna break, right? And I have personally put an Intel enterprise SATA SSD into a cert mode. Thank goodness it didn't have anything important on it that I didn't have another copy of, but that was just like, it just became an eight gigabyte SSD with a label that actually had a cert written in the drive volume label or the, like the product mm. ID. <laughs> and I was like, Oh, so, so that's, that's what how that it happens. <laughs> so that's what, how that, that's how that works. I mean, Kill it goes, with, me. yeah, it, it painful. Like, so if you were managing enterprise, you would just see that, that like, you know, you'd, you'd, Pull up your, uh, you know, your data across your enterprise, and you'd see, like, oh, this drive has been replaced by an assert drive. And then you'd go. Yep. And then you'd <laughs> jank it out, put another one in, and then you'd be, you know, off to the races again. Anyway. So, yeah. Just remember, client drives kind of have a purpose here. Uh, anyway. uh, Oh, we don't have a Mori, but we do have a... Uh, Gigabit LTE: The Path to Five G with Qualcomm, Ericsson, Netgear, and Telstra. Article. Hello, welcome to Telstra. <laughs> is that what that is? I've never heard that. It's a oh yeah, it's Australia, the Australian
3: yeah, telco. telco.
0: Oh, all right. Well, who read this one? Because I they suck. Uh, I unfortunately did not read this. Oh, yet. telcos suck.
1: Yeah, no, Telstra's got a special place in my heart, <laughs> and every Australian is sure. I'm. <laughs> I'm also sure. It's. It it's. 4G X, it's not quite 5G because, well, they're not IEEE, so they don't get to say that it's 5G. And right now we don't really know what 5G is going to be. But I mean, the the long story short of it is that when Maury did the tests, it was crazy. Uh, He was looking at, and I'm just trying to bring up that page now. Uh, 930 megs down and 94 up on a cell phone connection. The up is pretty funny at that point. The, the, I wish I could get that here in Canada on my bloody broadband. Exactly. But that would be nice. It's, it's interesting and it looks a little bit more reliable. Uh, they bring up some, uh, like just basic task manager, file transfer display and it's significantly faster and isn't quite as wobbly as you might see they also put uh netgear got into it because they've got a brand new router um the nighthawk m1 mobile router which uh is our friend uh, the snapdragon 835 soc in it and will essentially allow just about anything you've got to connect to this 4GX signal if you could get a 4GX signal. Uh, it's also got some MIMO tricks to it, um, which Sebastian might be able to go into deeper if he's come back. But essentially what they're saying is that they've got banding with 2x60 megahertz with 4x4 MIMO or 2x80 megahertz without 4x4 MIMO which is an interesting way to aggregate, but we'll, we'll sort of see how that works. And they've also got a new implementation of CAM, uh, which is 256, so 8-bit. Uh, we're all still sitting on 6-bit. Yeah. It's
2: it's not just the, the the CAM or QAM, however it's pronounced, support, and the fact that it's using... It, the, you, you can't get these kind of speeds without carrier aggregation. And You can do that a number of different ways. I know that Qualcomm has talked about different uh, methods in the past. You can have um, unlicensed spectrum usage. You can have multiple like LTE uh, bands concurrently with uh, MIMO. Um, that first slide shows like two x sixty megahertz or two x eighty megahertz aggregation. So you you have to have you can't use this with older hardware either. I saw something in the chat about that. You have to have. A compatible modem, the Snapdragon X sixteen modem, which is on how many phones right now? Right. So, yeah. if, if the next generation of flagship Snapdragon powered phones uh, offer support for this, and you're in an area with compatible networks, and you can aggregate, and and you know, then you could potentially get to this. Obviously, they're showing a best case scenario with this, but it it is kind of. Where this is going, uh, this is one implementation of it. Like you said, it's not really 5G because there is no ratified 5G, but 4G X, you know, enhanced backhaul 4G, kind of like the same stuff that happened back in the 3G era would be nice. You know, when we had mm-hmm. like enhanced backhaul HSTPA plus where phones were getting up to like, what was it, like 70 plus megabit at that point.
1: Yeah, on a good day.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Even before LTE was in place very much. But it's very interesting stuff. I love, I love the idea, the progress going forward. I would love to have, you know, gigabit at home. But I can't even get that. So if I could just get it on my phone, screw Spectrum. <laughs> Who needs it? I don't, I'd don't. get Ethernet for the first mile to my phone. Or just straight <laughs> up uh, fiber to my phone. Wireless fiber. The thing that I find amusing
3: out of all of this is the rumors we've seen about the Snapdragon 835 and how Samsung is hoarding all of them so it isn't in of phones. Yet there's this one Netgear router that they're going to sell to like 10 people in Australia that they're making with the 835 in it, which is obviously just like a Qualcomm deal. Like they partnered on this, like we got to get you some chips, but you won't be able to buy it in a non-Samsung smartphone for
2: a while probably. Yeah, like I mean, if it doesn't work, no quantities. one's going to Oz to check. Yeah, right. I'm assuming what Samsung did with their uh, Galaxy S8 is just take up the bulk of the like mass production. Maybe they did some like smaller volume runs for Netgear. But yeah, the if you're into this and live in an area where you can get at this kind of network speed, then you're probably going to want to get the latest Samsung phone, at least in the first few months.
0: All right,
5: sure.
1: Next,
0: looks like Josh. Empty
4: says, "Josh, go <laughs> f
0: yourself." Really? They did. Oh, I, I guess FY doesn't really. It mean does mean that in this case. Yeah. F- fee, yeah. fee yourself. Fiscal, Fiscal year, year two thousand and sixteen times,
4: yourself? please. Oh, yes. Let's <laughs> go. Go fy 260. Yeah, exactly. Nicely done, Jeremy. Anyway, AMD announced uh, results. What, yesterday or the day before? Can't remember which. Um, Even though I'm supposed to. It's been a long day. What can I say? But anyway, uh, they didn't make as much money as people were hoping, but they kind of made more money than people were expecting. So last (laughs) quarter, they made about $1.39 billion in revenue. But a lot of that was uh, the build-up to the holiday season in, in APU, CPU, GPUs, and probably most importantly, their uh, uh, custom semi work, which included new products from Sony and Microsoft that they were you know building up. So they had a pretty good, uh, pretty good quarter there in terms of revenue. But they had that uh, wafer start agreement. <clears throat> that they ended up paying something like 320 million to Global Foundries because they didn't meet the goals and expectations that they were contracted for. So uh, this quarter, they were at 1.11 billion of revenue, but their loss was only 51 million, which when you kind of look at the overall thing that's that's surprising especially in in light of of how much they lost the quarter before how much they've kind of lost throughout the entire year and uh where their revenue stack has has been going so they have some things working against them um in q4 their revenue from custom semi dropped dramatically and that makes a lot of sense because microsoft and sony they want to build up for the holiday season, so they order a lot of parts in Q2 and Q3 to get that all running and make sure that they have all the products in place because the the lead time on these products are, are tremendously longer than what we see on, on just CPUs, motherboards, video cards, consoles. Are, are, you know, it, it takes a quarter longer to be able to get... Things going so they, they can address certain market times. Um, <clears throat> so in Q4, that all dropped off because Sony and Microsoft don't want to have a bunch of extra inventory in place uh, when Q1 rolls around, so they cut it back pretty dramatically. However, CPUs, GPUs, they were okay. GPUs were stronger. Uh, AMD has done well on the budget and mid-range with the... Uh, RX 460 470 and 480 uh, those are all sub $250 uh, products it's a nice uh, it's a nice price uh, performance combination for them it's 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 comparable to what uh, Nvidia has with their 1050 1060s and again that's kind of the meat of the market because not everybody can afford a $400 graphics card much less a $600 one, and so AMD is, is competing well there. Um, but what they are bullish on, of course, is the upcoming next two quarters. Uh, in, in, in the talk that they had, they dis, uh, disclosed that uh, Zen or Ryzen will be released in a March time frame. Uh, we expect that to be somewhat early March, but we don't have an exact time yet. Uh, Vega their high-end graphics products will be released uh, sometime in second quarter. Uh, they are re- you know, Officially, it's a, a first-half 2017 product, but it's not making it here anytime in January, February, March. So we can see that in, in at least middle second quarter to possibly beginning of June. Who knows? Uh, but these are things that will materially impact the bottom line of AMD because it has now been how many years since uh, Vishera came out as as the top end CPU for for the desktop that was what 2011 2012 kind of amazing
1: years easily October
3: 2012
4: yeah that's that's kind of insane four and a half years yeah That many people who bought an 8350 at that time are still running an 8350. Talk about bang for the buck.
3: Something like that, I guess. Something. Something Unless, of course,
4: you don't like to play games at the highest possible frame rate with the uh, very latest video cars. So uh, that's kind of it in a nutshell. They did okay. Uh, I think, you know, I've got a lot of faith in this management team. I, I you know they've they've kind of took them through thick and thin. Well, okay, this management team has only had thin to deal with. Uh, but you know, a couple of quarters ago, they had something like seven hundred million of cash on hand. Well, even with losses and this wafer start agreement and all these other little things that happen, they've been able to increase that to one point two six billion. So even if they don't make a whole lot of money in the next couple of quarters they've they've got a pretty good cushion to take care of them and uh that's kind of a, a positive thing to to get all the from here and When we look at uh when March comes rolling around uh not only are there' going to be new CPUs but they've been selling chipsets to uh, create the the motherboards and uh really just it, it's going to be A good time for enthusiasts and mid-range guys. I don't have any official information, but we expect to have at least, you know, the the top-end CPU, which is going to help margins tremendously. Uh, If they can ship a decent amount of product, you know, they're going to have a good quarter. But again, it all depends on a lot of expenses. But we'll see. I think, you know, 2017 is kind of a make-and-break, make-or-break year but from what we have seen already, they have the tools in place to be able to be successful and at least get back in the black again. We can only hope. We can.
3: We can. Hopefully, ACDC plays when they do. Yeah. Then they won't be in the black anymore. They'll be in the red. They'll be back yeah. in black.
2: Mm hmm.
4: Yeah. Or they're going to have some balls jiggling. Because they've got the biggest to the left and the
0: right, yeah. All right, let's get into the news. You guys have been waiting
5: a long time to use
1: those lines, haven't you?
0: Yeah, long time. Uh, the gates, the gates, chopping I you. Pull
1: them awesome. out anytime I can.
0: Ah, uh, the, the boo. Uh, uh, no, no, no. Pioneer announced first UHD Blu-ray optical drives.
1: Josh considers upgrading his laserdisc.
0: <laughs> These are PC drives. Yeah, yes. so wait, what, do you, what I is... I didn't what is different? actually
3: think we'd see these.
0: Is it different, like... It's a different spec for UHD Blu-rays. There is uh, yeah, one very man.
2: important difference between these and a standard Blu-ray drive. Which is? Uh, encryption support. Okay. Or decryption support.
0: Alright, so they needed some extra special secret sauce, whatever.
2: Yeah, the actual stack, the, to get UHD Blu-ray working is pretty intense. It uses AACS2 encryption. You have to have a drive that actually has AACS2 enabled on it, I assume on the chipset in in the actual drive. Because all the only uh, media that's out there right now is double and triple layer Blu-ray media, as far as I know. And the... BDXL-compatible drive, which you can already buy, supports technically the reading of those discs. There has been no like, significant change to Blu-rays just because they're UHD. They're just using more layers when needed to avoid having to have multi-disc uh, films with special features and whatnot. But the, the actu- getting it working is something that just, you can't apparently do with a standard drive. And I actually, in looking into this news post, I was thinking, well, what if you just got a replacement drive for an Xbox One S? Because you can find those on eBay for like 60 bucks, And that's a UHD Blu-ray player, right? But find software that will actually understand and decrypt this, since I don't believe AACS 2 has been decrypted yet, has been broken yet. So... Basically, you're stuck with this. You buy this Pioneer Drive, which you can't buy here yet. It was uh, announced for availability in Japan, I believe, in March, or maybe it's the end of this month. And if it comes here, then you'll be spending, what was it, the, about $200 for the base one, and there's a $300 version, which has uh, some enhanced audio stuff. But the basic one, 200 bucks, and... Uh, a bundled version of PowerDVD that even though it was listed in the press release as PowerDVD14, PowerDVD14 is two versions old, and not even PowerDVD16 supports UHD playback. So I'm not sure if they have their own build of it that's been provided or if that was just a typo. But you're going to have to use, you know, just particular software with this drive and... Your GPU has to have HDMI 2.0A with HDCP 2.2 support, and the driver has to support AAC S2. You, there's, you have to have the supported monitor, so basically a current 4K TV that has HDCP 2.2 support. Or, you know, you, you get into all of these requirements at that point. Uh, why don't you just get a dedicated uhd blu-ray there, player which you can get for far less the problem is people want to rip these uhd blu-rays and that isn't possible yet yeah is there like what pc can you do this on
3: all these requirements
1: well i mean you need to buy an external adapter because you don't have any optic or five or a half and no, five I mean, and a quarter inch ports that's not,
2: that's not what i'm talking about i'm talking about i think if you just built a new intel system aren't the Cabulake lake uh don't they support? I believe you are correct. So you'd have to use, you'd have to have Kaby Lake so you can have AACS. And you support. have to use Windows 10. So, like, build a yeah. new computer, use Cabulate, get Windows 10. You don't even need an external GPU at that point. You won't be able to use Zen yeah. because get it a won't new monitor,
3: Sgx, right? So that's out of that. will be out of the way. You
4: won't be well, and then
2: sit quietly and wait for someone
1: to release something that actually has this.
2: In fact, I don't think that's even an optional thing. I think you actually do have to use 7th gen Intel, now that I'm looking yeah. at this again. Yeah, I don't think I mean, an, there's Anantech another thing. text post option. on this kind of broke it down and basically said you have to use the newest architecture Intel processor. You have to use Windows 10. You have to have one of these drives or another one that supports the uh, decryption, and you have to basically follow through the entire chain all of these HTCP requirements and... Then what? You know, you can't just use Handbrake on this. You have to decrypt it first. You can't use DVD decryptor on this. You have to have something that has broken the encryption, which hasn't happened yet. So, yeah. Give, it's it, all early uh, days. give it time. You know,
3: it's, give it minutes. I mean, the hardware has to exist for the support to come for everything. But yeah, that's 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 a tough, tough,
2: tough list. And you know what? A, a tougher list is looking at real or fake uh, 4K Google that, look at the website, the simple list uh, for that, that shows you on the left-hand column, fake 4K, and on the right-hand column, real or mostly real 4K. And most of the studio releases in UHD at this point are not even really 4K, they're upscales. Or when they are 4K, it's like, yeah, we did some of the stuff in 4K, but post-production was actually done in 2K, so the special effects are still at 2K, overlaid over 4K, film scans, and just... Yep. It's a mess. So the brand new movies that are shot in four K and mastered in four K, sure. And there are very few of them. So it's it's literally just like the very early days of Blu-ray where half of the studio catalog titles that came out were D V D upscales and looked terrible and had no new special features and all of that good stuff. Yep. But you can do it. But you can do it if you live in Japan and have two hundred dollars.
3: <laughs> doesn't seem like a you can to do. Uh, Well,
0: we don't have Scott Michelle on, which is a shame because uh, he wrote up this thing about DirectX Intermediate Language announced via GitHub, which is pretty cool. And there's about thirty-five different acronyms that I've never heard of in that. Uh, <laughs> And that news supposed to hiss?
3: Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I, I saw a little bit of this stuff. I think it's essentially kind of like a more general compute-based thing that compiles down to DirectX bytecode?
0: I guess. I, I don't I, know. I, Microsoft published a DirectX shader compiler to GitHub. So that's is is good. good. That's good, right? So that puts source out there for like... Oh. In this case, the intermediate language bytecode, which is, like, how things talk through DirectX to the GPU, right? Like, yes. right? Yeah.
4: And how to effectively do that without breaking everything. Yeah. Or causing it to be incredibly slow. Right. So that's,
0: you know, good. That knowledge is out there. I'm sure it'll lead to some other stuff. Other than what they intended, maybe, even. Like, like well... DirectX 12 support for Wine? Possibly. At hmm. least shader support for Wine, since it's the shader stuff that they oh, okay. put out. I don't know if that's everything, right? That wouldn't constitute everything, right, Josh? No, not everything. Right. But Wine 2.0 is going to be a little bit better for it.
2: Yeah, and it supports DirectX 11. Yeah.
0: Anyway, uh, more on that. At yeah, read Scott's
3: article on that. He's always really good with that sort of stuff. Yeah. So give it a read, digest it, and there you go. Uh huh. Uh, next up.
0: Hmm. This is Ken's favorite article, I think.
3: Uh, Mr. Arduino Man. Well, this isn't an, Ar- an Arduino. I this know. This isn't a microcontroller. This is a Raspberry Pi competitor. I know. I know.
2: Is it going to be that's, like $35? That's,
0: that's interesting. Uh,
3: I think it's supposed to be in that ballpark. I think it's. Uh, well, 56,
2: 60 bucks. Yeah, that's a little. No, so, so, 60 is, or 70. There you go. Can I use it to break HTCP? Uh, uh,
1: <laughs> <laughs> yes, you can. Oh,
0: the model number is sadly too long for us to even say on the podcast, but it's from Asus. And it's. uh. I mean, what is the actual CPU on this board? Is it actually...
2: Oh, Kyle is saying $65. Ah, $65. I, I think there's like two
3: different SKUs. Yeah. there's. I don't know what the difference is. <laughs> uh, so they're using a Rock chip SOC, which is for A17 cores, so 32-bit, unlike the Raspberry Pi 3, which went 64-bit. I mean, there's probably not a whole lot of advantage there for the type of stuff you use this for. Uh, CPUs collect at 1.8 gigahertz, and they're using... Uh, Molly GPU that I'm not entirely sure about. Uh, but oh, I think- it's a
1: fancy new Molly one that oh, yeah. does 4K H264. Huh. Was it the G71? Uh T764?
2: Hmm. Okay.
1: Yeah, uh, yeah. It's the super low power version of it, I believe. Yeah.
3: So sort of the thing people have picked up on this is that it can do uh, hardware diseller. D- d- hardware accelerated decode of 4k h264 and 10 bit h265 which the raspberry pi definitely can't do
1: yeah yeah and 2.25 watts playing back
0: a 1080p video ain't nothing to sneer at yeah so let me get this straight. You gotta buy a bunch of new PC hardware to play back 4K HDR, but this little sixty-five dollar thing might do it. Uh, probably not HDR. You got it, sir. <laughs> <laughs> no, it, it won't do HDR. Okay. However, well, I mean, if you say true. ten bit, ten bit, and you say all those other things, yeah, but things. that
3: doesn't mean it supports the correct HDCP standard to do uh, HDR, right? I guess. So it'll just
0: strip the HDCP out. Just be like, yeah, yeah.
3: The, the question I have is, what are you necessarily going to use this for? Because the majority of the 4k content that exists is streaming right now and as we know netflix streaming on desktop only works on cabby lake so it's certainly not going to work it's not implemented on linux and it's not going to work on this board so that narrows down a lot of your content so you're talking about native 4k content from something like plex but you can't rip uhd blu-rays no, so it's well, kind of putting the cart before the horse with the little, like the
1: pr was saying it's running debian and it uses cody
3: I
2: mean, he could I've actually not used Kodi before,
1: but I've heard it's decent. Kodi I mean, is Have you ever used a rebranded. You've used used
2: Xbox Media Center. Yeah.
1: What's an Xbox? Okay. Well, that's. Because Kodi was... is the
2: rebranded yeah. version uh, of uh, XBMC, right? Yeah. yeah. Oh, that makes more sense then. Yeah.
3: So, I mean, this thing is cool. It's a little pricey, but the bigger issue is there are a lot of competitors to the Raspberry Pi. It's like, Bunch of stuff coming out of China, like the Orange Pi, and then there's the Odroid, which is they're usually more powerful than Raspberry Pi for about the same price, if not a little more. However, a lot of the issue I've run into with these things is support. Whereas there are a ton of Raspberry Pis out there, and there are only three models of them at this point, you get widespread support on things like the Debian, like the ARM version of Debian and Ubuntu, will always support the raspberry pi because it's sort of the lead platform whereas it's not going to support these random kernels for the asus board with the rock chip and molly gpu in it it's just not going to because not a lot of people are going to buy it necessarily hmm. but that's that's how i feel at least i mean people could be i'm looking at the chat they might be a little more open about that but it's just i've seen i know people who bought these raspberry pi competitors and they're just like Software support is pretty awful
2: and stuff. There is a massive community behind Raspberry Pi, so it's hard yeah. to ignore that. Yeah. And for good reason. I mean, for thirty-five
3: bucks, you get a quad core. I think I think the Pi Three is quad core, sixty-four bit ARM CPU with Wi-Fi and Bluetooth built in. They'll do just about anything you need a little hobbyist single board computer to do.
2: Emulation. Yeah,
3: very very good for emulation. You don't need an NES Classic. <laughs> Just get a Raspberry Pi and have someone 3D print you an NES case, and there you go.
2: And have them 3D print a cable that's longer than thirty-two inches. Ah, you get that. <laughs> you get that sexy Bluetooth controller you got. Exactly. I have the, the NES. <laughs> was it the, was it the NES
0: Classic where they found like the byte for byte copy of the of the ROM from the Underground on the fricking? Ah, yeah. I think it was on the Virtual Console. I know they did on the Wii Virtual oh, Console. Yeah, I, I don't was the know Wii virtual if it's console. in other places. Yeah, it it literally had the emulation sh- header in it. like.
3: Which, to be fair, Nintendo could have ripped it using those tools because those tools are more accessible. They could have ripped I mean, the ROM themselves true. and not just downloaded it. In, that's true. But mm. it did
0: look kind of shady. It does seem shady. Anyway, uh, next up Toshiba plans to spin off its storage business, sell 20% of the new company. Gee, if only there was a name of a storage business. That, that they, they could, could use? That they could use and call mm. this if they spun it off of themselves. Um, but mm. would they bring back in Ryan Peterson? <laughs> no, I don't see
4: that happening.
0: <laughs> <laughs> he uh, back into the country? Nice he is not in the country. <laughs> yes, a matter of fact, mm. <laughs> for a good reason. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah. let's just say he's probably not coming back in the country. Uh, anyway, uh, ZDNet reported this. Um... Toshiba's in a financial bind because of losses from acquisitions and its Westinghouse division. Now, I feel bad saying this, but I'm a little bit tickled that Westinghouse is losing Toshiba money because there was a big stink back in the day when Toshiba. But he might have been. When Toshiba uh, bought Westinghouse. Familiar with? Yeah. That Toshiba bought Westinghouse. Yeah, and nuclear suddenly, submarines and, and cavitationalists. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, very low cavitation uh, screws propellers of submarines, and suddenly you had a non-U.S. company owning the machine to make those uh, propellers for submarines. Yeah. Anyway,
3: I don't know. I had a super cheap Westinghouse TV, and it served me great.
0: Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, they made okay TVs, you know. Uh, yeah. Uh, anyway, uh, so a cool class. Basically, Toshiba's All in you. Toshiba's in a bind, right? And they're like. Uh, Or, you know, we're low on money and we got to do something. So they're going to spin off their storage business. This is a storage business that they recently, well, they had some storage business already. They were already making Flash. But then they acquired OCZ. This is what, like two years ago now? Two or three. Two or three, something like that. Uh, So they acquired OCZ and now all of a sudden, you know, OCZ got kind of a boost there because they were able to get their Flash, you know, at cost basically. Like it was from their own company at that point. Uh, which yeah, was and good sadly talk. they sold it for below cost. but oh, well, that's a different story. Well, um, anyway, so you know now they're now they're going to spin it off again. I don't know that they're going to call it OCZ. That can't even possibly be successful, right? Uh, I don't. I don't know. I really don't know. I mean, did did they make hard drives, drives? Here's the thing. O- Didn't they make hard drives at some point? One of the reasons that OCZ was so easily acquired. From Toshiba, remember they were going like they were merging money. No, they they were like on their way to being like non-existent. Yeah, and they were saved by Toshiba. And the reason they, one of the reasons they were on their way to being non-existent, was because they were one of the companies trying to make SSDs without a direct supplier of flash. They had to deal with trying to get Flash from all the companies that were out there. Sure, sure. But, I mean, um, I don't think the OCZ acquisition has necessarily helped either party. No, I don't I don't think so either. But I just what, – what I fear worse is that now if they spin OCZ back off, then it might just evaporate, right? Because it was going to yeah. evaporate before – now what happens if you spin them off? Now they're having to buy. They're probably
3: weaker than they were before they got bought. To yeah, be honest, I mean,
0: as a brand. I mean, if, I mean, if, if they assuming they would spin the flash off with them, which would be okay. Maybe right if the whole storage thing goes. It's supposed to be all of the storage stuff and also image sensors. Because probably because it's fab involved yeah. thing, so right? So the fabs probably making the sensors too. Yeah. Um, how how many third parties use Soshiba Flash? Like, if you like open an SS, well, I guess it's toggle mode. Anytime you hear about toggle mode, yeah, yeah. But flash, is that like I know that was a thing there. a few years ago, but is that really? Yeah, it's still there. Okay. I mean, it's oh, not, it's still you know, there. Yeah, it is still there. Uh, it's it's kind of dipped a little bit because we're waiting on um, Bix BICS, which is their 3D, ah, and it's not a thing yet. Like we we've talked about it and stuff, and it's supposed to be coming, but they're just not like. All the way ramped up on, yeah, you know, production on it yet. That will be good for them when it happens. It just hasn't Hopefully. happened yet, right? <laughs> I mean, even at, even at CES, they they were like, I went and visited Ocz, and we didn't write anything about Ocz because I I went there and they were like, we're waiting on X, like we can't like, there's nothing. They had a product line, but it was everything we'd already covered. Yeah, right. There was nothing <laughs> that's new. O- that's always a rough CES yeah. appointment. Yeah, I mean, they yeah, they're basically just like, sorry like you know there's we we don't we can't launch anything yet like we're waiting on this 3, 3D stuff. So anyway, yeah. Yeah, I mean it's possible that once their 3D does come out, it would be good for Toshiba's storage part as well as OCZ as a, the you know the side thing for them because they would you know potentially have you know relatively cheap. Like the 3D stuff is that's what 3D is bringing everybody, right? It's, it's low cost. So um
3: I mean, do you think there's a possibility that Toshiba just sells that business to someone and doesn't necessarily spend it all... Like, they spin it off into something they sell someone, like Western Digital or Seagate or someone like that, Well, who's looking for a bit of a flash boost and just trying to keep buying everyone possible.
0: Think, yeah, I don't know. Western Digital's not game anymore, because they have SanDisk now, and SanDisk yeah. has Sandisk their own flash. flash. Yeah. I mean, maybe Kingston? Kingston, couldn't afford it. I
3: well, I, guess I don't it, know. Kingston is one of those Kingston, companies that has a lot of money that I, you never think, I think about. Kingston aren't they Kingston could
0: afford it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, Kingston like the last big company that's not doesn't have their own in-house flash that's huh. for SSDs. If yeah. you Think
4: about it. Right. Um, Where, where's my Bigfoot NVMe controller?
0: <laughs> well, well, it wouldn't be Bigfoot. It would be, Sandisk. Kind of, but not. <laughs> God, that's such a confusing, convoluted thing. Everyone like bought, bought everyone. Like they had Sandisk, and then Sand or not, not Sandforce had Sandforce, and then Sandforce went to LSI, and then LSI uh, sold it to Sandisk. I think there's an intermediate, and then Sandisk yeah. got bought by Western Digital. Yeah. But I think some of the people that originally worked on the thing were, are still at OCZ. No, but
4: SandForce is not uh, Bigfoot guys.
0: Who's uh okay, Bigfoot who, was IndyLinks. What? Big uh, IndyLinks. Oh yeah, Indie that's the name I haven't that's, thought yeah, about. But wow. then, the, but there were IndyLinks guys that went to SandForce, <laughs> like. There's yeah, yep. there's but really the OCZ not in the links. So second I, I, I so
3: like I will, tell you this. I,
0: I will tell you this straight up that the, the India, whoever India links guys remained at OCZ, I think were at least partly responsible for like the try on. Yeah. Okay. Okay. The, the, the show companies interpreting
1: is almost Enron-like. See, so, I, I'm SSDs. sure if we could actually trace it back, there's like two companies now that are actually doing <laughs> that.
0: The, the Tryon SSDs are, are like personally responsible for me developing new tests to show problems with SSDs. So if that tells you like where their controller like wow. design guys were at. I, I, I figured it out. Seagate's
3: still on Sandforce, so if Toshiba sells their flash division to, to Seagate, yeah, Toshiba <laughs> sells the Flash division to Seagate. Uh-huh. They could get the gang back together, It'd be Ocz and Sandforce, and they could just be one happy. Oh, family. it was Seagate that. Yeah. <laughs> Do we
5: need to get the whiteboard out? <laughs> Almost, but
4: the chalice
5: of the no, no. We is need the pieces of paper and
4: true. pins and
0: strings. NAND flash. <laughs> I mean, yeah, that is really a hu- just a huge mess. But anyway, yeah. so they're possibly going to get spun off, and then. It's a shame see. because after they get spun off, presumably is when their three D stuff comes out, which would be the thing that actually kind of saves the storage side of them. So I don't understand why they're doing like a dump and like a dump and run. I don't know. Pump and dump. A pump? No, not a pump and dump. It's like it's like the opposite. Anyway, all right. Uh, if only it was
4: like five, six years ago when things were so much more non-confusing you you just didn't want to buy a j micron controller a SandForce was good the indy at the time was a big step up from j micron and the intel was pretty darn good except you were limited on writes what's, and then we figured funny? out the
3: reliability of SandForce 2 controllers
4: there was yeah. not
0: just the reliability but the funnier thing was that the way that we test now compared to the way that we tested then Makes them look like garbage. Oh, they look horrible because they, they the would do
3: heavy compression stuff, right? Well, it
0: wasn't just the compression. Sandforce had a really long pipeline within their controller from the time you requested something to the time it made it to the flash, and then it had to go back, right? Yeah. And uh, so, low Q depth performance is just horrible, like really, really horrible. Um, and like as it turns out, the slowest, one of the slowest SSDs we have here, not NVMe, since Josh was asking for NVMe. AHCI, but a PCI SSD was the Revo 350. It had like four of those controllers. The Revo Drive it? 350 with four of those controllers on it <laughs> is the slowest SSD in our latency percentile results. <laughs> that's funny. It's yeah. it's like I think I think it's actually like just a couple of notches above an X25M, nice, which was SATA two, yeah, and limited to eighty meg per second. So anyway, <laughs> uh, yeah, that's let's just. Move on. Maybe one day we'll figure it out. One day we'll figure it out. Uh, living Dangerously, delitting your 7,700K. Sebastian? No, it's just... No, Maury. Yeah, yeah, That's that's my... <laughs> I it's have a personal it story it. directed at Maury. Yeah, that story is kind of directed at Maury. It's the
3: first time for everything, Sebastian. I think you should give it a shot. Why don't Those, you, you
0: print a, me one of these things? I'll and maybe you I will. print
3: you the crap out of one of these. Is things. this the thing we you can,
0: use to put the razor blade into the side of the thing? Is that what this? I don't know if this is
3: the razor blade
0: method or if this is I the mallet, mallet method. Oh,
3: I want to say it's mallet. Yeah. Oh
2: God, seriously, which would
3: be great. Yeah, this is just like the jig that someone designed so you can set the CPU in yeah, there. It's
2: precision cut. I mean, look, it's, it's it's precision percussive maintenance. I see. <laughs> but yeah, so maybe you like heat it up or anything first, or you just like put it in there and just start wailing away on it I with a hammer. It. I think
3: you just kind of put it in there and start wailing away with it oh, with, all, with the rubber mallet.
0: That's.
1: Uh...
3: Yes, Kyle, I think I linked you Lou, in this one
1: as well. And you uh, yes i did uh because you guys actually got serious results It dropped from 90 something to 68 degrees when you replace the tim so it is worth it in a way right? i once again intel may not have gone with the absolute best thermal interface material inside
3: of that why
4: not they can afford it They're running
3: at 63% margins. Do you understand profit margin, Josh? They can just (laughs) toss something in there, Josh. It's fine. They're probably putting toothpaste in there by now.
0: Just cut down the cost. No, toothpaste actually worked better than that. So do the cheese whiz? Yeah, bubble gum. But There's a dude on the line just chewing gum and just sticking it in there. On the other hand,
1: there's one thing, and I actually had an interesting discussion strangely in the, the comment section on the website uh, of someone who was pointing out something that I haven't heard uh, from any MD rep or an Intel rep in a long time, which is don't use the damn paste. Use the Tim we provide you because that paste is brilliant for six to eight months, maybe a year. Then it needs to be replaced. Huh. Really? For most, for most people that doesn't matter because if you're using it, you're usually upgrading your CPU or just
3: yeah. ripping things apart. If and you're generating a CPU, fine. A year is probably a long time to have your system yep. put together enough. But if you leave it sitting there for
1: years at a time, yeah, it dries out, it develops cracks, and you won't really notice it. But yeah, it slowly starts to bake stuff. And it's, it's sort of a reasonable argument in that the vast majority of overclockers that are picking up, uh, and it was for a, a benchmark for which was the best uh, pace at the time. Those guys, if it's the same paste after six months, they they're being lazy and got distracted with other stuff. They're constantly putting it on, putting it out because that's a problem with those sticky tims you used to get from uh, AMD and Intel. Is that's a one use thing? You tear that off, and half of it's on your core, and half of it's on the heat sink, and neither wants to come off. So we'll be interested. I'm interested to see if this lasts. But then again, anyone who's delitting their body CPU is not expecting it to last for four years.
0: So, I mean, it looks like... So, so, Kyle's
3: pointing out in the chat that they're testing. They found that it wasn't necessarily the TIM. It was the, yeah. the Z height between the heat spreader and the and the die. Sure. that so, would, yeah.
0: That would explain a Delta T. Yeah. So... That's, it seems it seems odd that it would explain that much of a delta T with that with well, a pretty, it's
1: huge and, and yeah. I'm looking at it, it was ninety-one C under full load down to sixty-eight C.
0: Yeah, that's holy crap. this did not necessarily
1: immediately so give like, you a five gigahertz uh clock speed.
0: Yeah, it didn't change uh, it didn't change what they, he what he got out of it, really. Well,
1: it did, but he had some serious fuckery to do. Oh. Uh with either feeding over voltage up to like one point three five or so or above dropping RAM down to or 2666 a couple of other things but it could reach it so it's, it's not going to magically make you have a 5 gigahertz processor on the other hand it's going to drop your temps either down to the 60s or down to room temperature because you killed that $400 CPU so if Ken printed you out one of the 3D shrouds definitely blame him
0: yeah Alrighty,
3: righty. Um, yeah. Something to look at if you're interested. I, I think the the hard RCP article that Kyle's linked to that they did seems pretty in-depth, and you can kind
0: of see what he's talking about with the Z height there a little better in photos than you yep. can from our yep. description. Anybody's allowed to read that except for Mori. Maury. Maury's not allowed to read that. At least you know until about a week before QuakeCon. Like well, cracking things. You know, yeah. Leaving your heatsink installed on a system that's de-lidded and then bringing it to QuakeCon in a car is not a good idea.
3: Well he had that D Lid guard on it. There's how much that worked.
0: Yeah, it didn't yeah. It didn't really didn't help him. Anyway.
1: Made for a great story. We're still telling it years later.
0: Uh what is Microsoft doing with infrared lasers? Lasers in the server room. How is this a bad idea? It's, it's so I know you guys play laser tag in the server room already. So, does that mean that this is going to, like, add some complexity to that, or what? Well, I mean, it depends
1: if you like the guy that you send into the server room or not, I guess. <laughs> uh, but uh, it's work out of uh, Kent State that Microsoft is uh, backing to at least a little bit. They've invested some in it. What they're looking at is going wireless. And so, they're going to use IR lasers and MEMS-controlled mirrors. As the interlink between the servers. It's interesting. I mean, they're they're certainly getting decent speeds out of it. Uh, 10 gigabits a second is not amazing, but it's better than a lot of people have got. You won't have to deal with wire management anymore. You might want to wear protective goggles because even a fairly low power IR laser is going to not be the most pleasant experience with your eyeball now what they did do uh which is disgusting is they they called it uh firefly which is an acronym of free space optical interact network with huge flexibility because that totally calls it firefly doesn't it it's yeah it's Yeah, it's it's pretty tortured, but it's it's interesting in a way because wire management sucks. It's beautiful when you walk in that very first day of the build out and over the next six months suddenly becomes a very appetizing Italian meal. On the other hand, we're talking direct line of sight, even if you're tossing mirrors in there, uh, you've got. You walk into your server room. Congratulations, you've just taken down a few clusters. <laughs> you just walked in front of the bloody
0: laser. There's just random packet loss happening, yeah. and you can like tell. Yeah,
1: I am not doing Mission Impossible into the server room yeah. to t- try and get to something. Yeah. Where, where's
0: Where's um, Jeremy out in the server room? Well, he, which Which server's down?
3: You just put all the lasers at the top of, tops of the racks, yeah. and you extend your point you you extend your
0: ceiling, so you're going up like oh, at I ten think. feet.
1: Perfect. Ah, because of course, there's be no dust coming down and degrading mm. the signal then either. Just make no. it a,
3: or, a clean room, and then you're good. Yeah, yeah, because we
1: can afford that.
4: Okay. Lasers. Yeah,
1: freaking lasers. Interesting. I don't think the freaking laser beams are going to work, but it's interesting.
0: <sighs> okay. Next, uh, Zenimax awarded a half a billion dollars speaking of freaking lasers, uh, in the Oculus lawsuit. But, Considering
3: they're asking for $4 billion, mm, well, there's that, they're probably not the
0: happiest people in the here's world. Here's the thing, though. I thought like Carmack was like their central argument at the beginning for this thing, and Carmack is specifically not fined, even though other people were. It's almost like Carmack has been well, vindicated I mean, in sure. the way the result came out.
3: sure. They they filed a lawsuit, and then in discovery
0: they found some other stuff. So that you know, like, I guess, yeah. But I thought the stuff they kept trying to prove, yes, was that Carmack stole a bunch of stuff from them. Yes, that's what they that's what they were trying to prove. But apparently, he didn't steal anything from them. They obviously didn't prove that, or at least if he copied some stuff, he didn't bring it to the other company or okay. whatever. But, but whatever the case may be, right? Uh, I don't know. Yeah, it essentially,
3: from what I understand, boils down to NDA breaches. Palmer Lucky and Brendan Nerebe and Oculus uh, Oculus Facebook as a company. Okay, so
5: I mean, wasn't there some issue with the use of the Doom BFG edition trademark as well in that suit? Uh, there might have been. I probably. I, I just
0: kind of. Sc- they were throwing over. like whatever they could see stick in that lawsuit. From my you know perspective of it, but uh, okay. I mean, and then they'll probably appeal it. And then if it doesn't go through on appeal, the then Facebook will sneeze, and five hundred million dollars will yeah will, will come out of will fall out of their sock, and then they'll pay that off, and then they'll just be done with it. Yeah, I mean it's it's not going to be because they bought they bought the company for two bill in the first place. What's another like twenty percent or twenty five percent or whatever that works out to? It was ten billion. I think. Oh, was it ten? I think they bought Oculus, for it was 10 two billion. I could be wrong, but no.
3: I I remember it being some stupid. Stupid, stupid it was supposed to be 2 billion card. it's at the beginning of the article unless, okay unless that's wrong silicon valley evaluate valuations i mean anyone? if it
0: was 10 it's even less of a percentage of you know yeah yeah it looks like it was 2 billion all right 2 billion 10 billion it's basically the same to me yeah I'm well we made see. it to I,
1: I don't have either so yeah <sighs>
0: all right next yeah uh, Hardware software picks of the week. Uh, Ryan. Oh, thank the Lord. Ryan does not have, Yeah, I know. <laughs> Ryan doesn't have one. He's on an airplane. He's going somewhere. Uh, his pick is probably... Uh, faster Wi-Fi. Yeah, faster Wi-Fi or a bed at this point, probably. Jeremy.
1: I picked up this little thingy. The uh, very reflective. I don't even know that I can get this. It's a Roku ro- streaming stick. streaming stick. Yes, it's the uh, four-core version because it's a great marketing term. I have a feeling it's a big little. Uh, The remote is wonderful because I've been running Netflix and YouTube and everything from my computer hooked up to the TV. Which means I've got to get my RS off the couch occasionally to uh, switch channels or attempt to stop watching. Now I've got a nice little lovely remote. This particular one... Uh, will actually save your account so it is quite happy if you take it anywhere on the road so if work drags you to some strange location and you're stuck in a hotel room there's an hdmi slot and a plug pop her in and you're watching uh your your favorite netflix the canadian netflix because well (laughs) canada but you know it's it's still better than nothing uh, it's got access to the Google store, so I haven't really played a lot with the apps yet, but there are quite a few of them that you can grab. It's snappy. Uh, you're not sitting there and watching it spin and hoping it's going to load. And then you got it for about an hour, and then halfway through the movie, it takes a wee little break. This one? Nah, no problems with it at all. It's been very quick. It's very snappy. Unlike my internet just then. Uh it does require, uh, it does, won't, I haven't been able to test it. Apparently you should be able to power it off of the USB plug. Uh, if you've got a TV with USB with power out, my ancient machine there doesn't have one. So I've got it plugged into mains, but still it's quiet. It doesn't get warm. And I am very happy with 50 bucks that I dropped on it.
3: Uh, one of the things that has always really impressed me about Roku is the setup experience. How did you find that?
1: I all forty five seconds to a minute of it was terribly annoying. I I I. I <laughs> what is your Wi Fi? Oh, it's that one. Well, What's your password? Oh, it's that. So uh, welcome to Netflix. Yeah. Done. <clears throat> it, it was less than a minute.
3: At least the last one I set up, there was like a web browser component. So you would go to it. Like I think yep. you. I guess you would get it connected to your network first, and you go to your, a little short URL. And you'd say, install Netflix, install Amazon, install all this stuff. And it was automatically pushed it over. And you could yep. log in with your credentials. So you could use an actual computer to do it instead of messing around with an on screen keyboard. I mean, an arrow based yeah. on screen yes, keyboard. Yeah, the arrow based like, interface is lovely. <laughs> it's like a wonderful startup method. And Roku is the platform that everyone supports. Yeah, it's that's kind of the, the oldest one. It's the biggest one. So like every app is on Roku.
1: Well, and once I get off my arse and build a Plex server. It's going to be compatible yeah. as well. Yeah.
0: And it'll be feeding off my Wi-Fi and not a problem under the world. I, st- I still think it's comical that, like, that kind of a solution is so dang slow compared to, what, what, 30, 40 years ago we had arcade games with spinners that you could put your initials in for the high score that was, like, 10 times better than this. Yeah. Like, you just Well, spin yeah, the but thing it started with your, A, what?
1: so it was much easier. <laughs> well,
3: yeah. Just getting to the SS that was harder. Yeah, true. You weren't putting a whole lot of symbols in those,
0: I imagine. Also true. Yeah. <laughs>
3: I got a 50 character
0: passphrase All right Josh Sure What Yeah you're up Me Yeah you Hmm
4: You know I heard that there's like a 58 gig patch update to, to Fallout 4 So I figured if you really wanted to take advantage of that you should buy the game first And you can do that on Amazon for 24 bucks
3: It's a physical copy. You got to wait till it gets delivered to you. (laughs) You got to wait for them to to deliver you the steam key inside the box. Exactly. (laughs) Seriously? Yeah. 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 Yeah.
0: (sighs) Okay.
4: I'm not saying it makes sense, but
0: it's funny. It is funny. You know, and, and plus patience is a virgin. Just to think that to get deals today, we have to resort to waiting for something to come in the mail. Yeah, they have to uh, send. I still get my
4: first wife. So,
3: <laughs> oh, hmm. it's actually the frustrating thing about Amazon, like their Prime video game deals, where like in the first two weeks, if you buy a game from Prime, they give you fifteen percent off or whatever. Yeah, which is awesome, cause it's awesome a sixty dollar game you get fifteen percent off. Sure, good deal. It is, but it doesn't work digitally. They have to ship you the yeah. copy of the game. It's, okay,
0: you know, if, you're really it it if you really sense, if you really want to send me a box, then send yeah. me a box. Yeah, yeah go I'm for like. it. Yeah. And Haskell we used to have a joke about, like, Microsoft, Microsoft's new product. Microsoft, empty box. Because <laughs> at the point, like, they would make the, you know, get this huge box and all it would have is, like, you know, a floppy disk eh? <laughs> for, like, DOS 5.0 or something, came yeah. in a huge box, right? Anyway. Uh, me. I uh, couldn't find the exact version that I bought. However, comma. Uh, do you have it pulled up? Yeah. Uh, so, Diamond Clear is a company that makes resins for fixing windshields. And if you happen to crack things that are not windshields, like, say, your phone, screen cracks, and it's just like a hairline crack sort of thing, not like when your screen splinters, like you dropped it off a building or something like that, but like a single hairline crack, it's possible to get a crack filler. Josh, don't laugh. (laughs) uh <laughs> it's showing uv on it too. you have to you have to look for yes uh you have to look for uh low viscosity which is not the kind that i could find in a small vial like I are showing on the stream here that's like medium viscosity but if you look around on ebay you can find it the stuff's like two or three bucks for one of these little vials uh it's handy to have them and you also need a, a uv flashlight to cure it but you know, it cracks in any kind of like glass, or if like a glass figurine or something gets dropped by a kid and then it shatters in twenty pieces, you can actually put it back together. And with this kind of like windshield repairing stuff, it's designed to match the uh, the refractive index of glass as close as possible, right? So once you put the thing back together, conceivably you might not even see the crack, like it just kind of disappears. Um, My crack usually disappears after a while. And crack that's that's very safe. That's good. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, he spent too much
1: time in the studio as an intern.
0: <laughs> yeah, he figured out how to make his crack disappear. Um, I made a crack disappear on an iPhone 6s Plus today with that very stuff. D- um, disappear? It's. I mean, you have to look for it, right? But I mean, if you just look at the phone screen, yeah, like it's not. I mean, there. it's it's certainly better than it would
3: have been. Yeah. It, it's a cool fix.
0: Yeah. Uh, you know, you have to catch it like right away, because otherwise, you know, if you get dirt and crap in there, then. It's not going to work that well, but, uh, I mean, it does, it does work. I'd never thought to use it on a phone screen until today, but holy crap. Like, it's pretty amazing. Especially when you like put it on one edge of it and kind of put a suction cup on the screen so you can kind of flex a little and open up the, the seam for the stuff to run down. And it literally just like, just, just runs like an inch every second. Oh, Kinky. Just, Just down, just down this crack. Yeah. It's amazing. Just slid right in there. Best experience all day? Yeah. Very satisfying. So, no. so
5: before we go way off the rails here, someone was asking... Too is, late. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, does that affect the, the capacitive touch?
0: No, it's, didn't, it didn't change anything on this. Um, but, I mean, it still worked with the crack there. Like, most, most of the time when you see cracks in an iPhone screen, like, the thing still works. Mm-hmm.
2: And this See, being- iPhone uses in-cell touch, so the touch sensors are actually integrated into the LCD panel... Yeah. So the glass is simply a layer of Gorilla Glass over yeah. the top. Yeah, the glass is literally just glass
0: with, like, nothing important in it, right? Uh, oh, you so it's just something to break. Uh, basically, yeah. It's just protecting the stuff under it. Just take the um, glass off. It'll
2: take you that much huh.
0: closer to the screen. Oh, you get bare metal experience, man. It's awesome. Um, yeah, the resolution like is so much better that way. <laughs> yeah, the, the Z height goes way down on that. Yeah, yeah, and it, is, it runs cooler, like, you know, for that heatsink that's on there. Just picture someone putting thermal paste on an iPhone screen, digitizer, you know. Um. Anyway, yeah, I mean, it worked pretty good, and uh, this being a six S, like the the force touch, like still just didn't seem affected, and this seems to be staying put, even though I tried force touching in some areas where the crack was, and it's not messing it up. So overall, it was a success. Uh, so far, we'll see if it lasts. If not, then I'll have to you know go spend thirty or forty bucks on eBay and get a replacement screen and do so. No,
2: I have a feeling that Gorilla Glass was never specifically designed to be pressed on really hard all the time i can't imagine it's a good thing over the or like a two year span to be like pressing really hard on your iphone I guess. screen i don't really use force touch though so it's not that's
0: not I, what made it happen i bet apple has paid corning enough to make that a <laughs> thing <laughs> yeah. that it's able to do that stuff is surprisingly flexible there was that demo we need this from, to
3: last one
1: to five days after our warranty expires there was, one, was I, seven I
2: using four or three i don't know i don't know. It's.
0: It seems so meaningless. 4 like,
2: more shatter-proof but less durable overall than 3 was, I think.
0: There was, there was that promo video they showed during one of the, you know, launches, for like, maybe the 5 or something, when they were showing how they were testing their screens, and they showed the screen itself, just the glass in the test rig with the press pushing down on it, yeah. and it, like, almost tacoed it, and it was still, like, didn't shatter. Oh, ah, the hydraulic that was press chair. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Pioneered by Apple's, like, demo hmm. of... I
2: Yeah. Anyway. That way when your phone bends your glass doesn't break. Uh, I, they engineered it to to stand up to It's flexible. Yeah, the rigors of everyday use of an iPhone. Like, you know, being shoved into the back pocket of my wife's jeans and then she sits down and Who does such a thing? Women. Yeah, they, they, many, many they don't have people. real front pockets, so they use the <sighs> back ones. Yeah, she has the uh, Plus, the 7 Plus now, so it doesn't, She oh, there's the only place she can put it, and I keep on warning her, like, you can't sit down when that's in your pocket, you're going to bend your phone.
1: Mind you, in ladies' wear, it's impressive to have a pocket big enough to fit the S7S. Yeah. Anyway, who's next? All right, Ken, you want to embarrass yourself?
3: <sighs> well, Jeremy's pick kind of took the steam out of mine. Uh, if you're looking for a more expensive option to the Roku that can do things like 4K and HDR, uh, the Shield has actually become a pretty good device. Uh, I think it was late or er, early last year, the Shield, Shield, Shield TV, whatever you want to call it, launched. And it had some support. It had like, stuff like Netflix 4K and GameStream, but they've really supported it with software updates. The latest update just came out. I have. The Shield 2015, so the 2017 that's just coming out that we saw at CES, or 2015 or 2016, whatever. Uh, and they just released the sort of Android 7 Shield Experience 5.0 update to it, adding things like Amazon H 4K HDR video, which is really something I've been waiting for because my TV doesn't have a built-in app for that. And Amazon has a lot of the streaming HDR content that's available now. So that's a big plus. They're one of the few devices that can actually do that. Amazon themselves don't sell a device, a Fire TV device, that can do HDR yet, which is kind of mind-boggling. So that was a nice bonus. Uh, They've bumped GameStream up to be able to do 4K HDR, which is interesting, I guess. I don't really see myself streaming a game from a gaming PC at 4k HDR and expecting that to work very well across my home network, but we'll see. We might get to test that out at some point,
1: but and these are also the devices you guys use to prop up tables, right? When you got
3: a short leg. Well, yeah. I mean, yeah, of course. Yeah. What else would we use? Uh, there, there's some cool things coming with the shield that they teased at CES, uh, the Google assistant, Google home integration is one of the big things. So sort of the Amazon echo like device, the, the Google home Stuff So you can do home automation and all that fun stuff. I think it'll be interesting to see how exactly that shakes out. Comparing it to my Amazon Echo, which I use to turn my lights on and off. Because I'm a crazy idiot person who doesn't like light switches, I guess. (laughs) You could get the clap. Yeah. I'm not entirely sure why they've continued to support the shield. Considering it probably hasn't sold particularly well. Just kind of looking at the online communities for Android TV stuff, they're very small at this point. But I keep putting effort into it, and it seems to be a pretty decent device at this point. And the $200 price point for buying the new Shield 2017 is actually, actually pretty decent. So if you're looking for sort of an all-in-one media streamer for 4K HDR stuff, like a lot of people might be now, it's a pretty good pick. I'd recommend it. Sebastian? Wait. Alex has something. You put this order in here. This is all out of order. It should be me. That uh, should be Sebastian. Fine, Sebastian. I just don't understand how Alex has spare time to play a game. <laughs> it's, it's not being worked hard enough.
5: Obviously, that's it. I need to be working harder. Yes.
0: Yeah. Yes. Where's the where's yeah. the cooking oil or mineral oil? Sorry. Mm. Okay, if you've got cooking time, to, game, you've got time to clean
2: or edit or something. Oh. All right. So you I could have, have been playing with your a... crack. Hmm no more crack talk all right i've been looking around for an updated uh, or a new sound pressure meter the one that i have is pretty limited does not allow me to change like the polling rate doesn't let me change the the weighting and i was starting to strongly suspect that it wasn't even reading below like 33 34 decibels anyway so i found one from i think it's nady Natty? nady nady The DSM-1X, which had good reviews in the various sites I was looking around, the important thing about this is not only does it go all the way down to 30 decibels, but it does it from a range of 32 hertz to 8 kilohertz, and quite a few of the meters, including I think mine, only go down to about 100 hertz. So the really low sounds that might be like some sort of audible humming or something in like a, a loop that you can hear when you're standing next to a cooler, and are not registering at all on the SPL meter, hopefully now I can actually include those results in like cooler and case reviews. But for about seventy five bucks compared to a lot of the much more expensive like solutions out there, including you know, read instruments, XTech and stuff, like to actually get one that goes down to thirty decibels from a name brand, you're usually talking about two fifty and up. So if this one ends up being good, it's a very nice alternative if you're looking for something like this.
0: All right. Now, so Alex. Alex. This is the future.
5: All right. So my choice this week was Rimworld, which, of course, is not going to frame up on here. Um, this is a one-man uh, development. Uh, it's been around for I want to say a year and a half uh, in alpha. Um, it's thirty bucks currently on Steam. Uh, it's a colony sim. You're basically you crash land on a foreign, you know, an alien planet, and you have to well survive, um, which you will not do on many occasions. Um, it's kind of billed as more of a storyteller game than actually a, you know you have a plot and you have a goal. Um, it's just we're going to see what any kind of entertainment we can do to your poor hapless colonist along the way, um, but if you because
1: it's full of like uh, hairdressers and telephone sanitizers and such, right?
5: No, it's a little bit more dark than that. Um, you saying Douglas Adams isn't dark? Uh, a little bit more overtly. <laughs> There's there's subtlety to it. It's just like, no, uh, everything catches fire, and your wildlife is killing everyone, and everyone dies. Um, Start over. Um, I find it pretty entertaining. That might make me a horrible person. (laughs) You hang it with us, by definition. I'm glad I fit in.
3: (laughs) All right. Well, that actually, looks. I, I heard about that. I think like a year ago when it was still kind of early yep. on and yep. stuff. That that
5: uh, it looks pretty cool. It, it's changing very quickly. That's always um, interesting, at least. So if you put it down for a month, you come back a month later, it's a different game.
3: Yeah, that that can be frustrating at times, but also kind of cool to see the development process. Yep, for long.
5: Um, and there are there's a considerable amount of mods available. So, if you don't like the base game, there's a lot of different huh. ways to mix it up.
0: Cool. All right. Well, that about wraps it up. Yep. Awesome. About. About. Uh, PCPer.com slash podcast is where you'll find the show notes for this episode and all of the other ones. Um, Twitter.com slash Ryan Shroud if you want to yell at the boss. Twitter.com slash PCPer if you want to yell at uh, the boss. <laughs> He's the one that checks that. Yeah um and i guess that's about it uh so with that i'm alan Malvintano. i'm jeremy Hellstrom.
2: i'm josh walrus i'm sebastian peak oh my god <laughs> you're
0: supposed to say something nope <laughs> he's I'm not, discount I'm not sharing my identity.
2: producer mode
0: uh, not sharing my identity fine Sorry. fine cut fine. to black if
1: you
5: enjoyed this content, consider supporting in-depth technical content by contributing at patreon.com/pcper